Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by Beatbread. Beatbread is a company that helps artists stay in control and get funding to control their careers. Beatbread is not a record label, distributor, or artist's services company. You get an advance upfront, that advance is taken against your catalog. Beatbread then collects that money with you with the catalog. And then at the end of the day, you retain ownership of your masters, sync, and your publishing and everything else. To learn more, go to beatbread.com. Today's episode of the Trapital Podcast is brought to you by MoonPay. MoonPay is the leading Web3 infrastructure company trusted by major crypto brands and millions of people worldwide. MoonPay is your portal to Web3, a reimagination of the internet where you can transact with peers globally and own your digital identity. MoonPay makes it fast and simple to jumpstart your Web3 journey. Quickly use your debit or credit card to buy and sell crypto and purchase digital collectibles. Visit moonpay.com slash trapital to get started. Most of my music is available for free on YouTube. On qualityclub.com, you can get all my mixtapes for free. You can get the album Fuck the Money for free. My biggest song, Get By. You could, if that shit came on in the store, you could Shazam it and listen to it on Shazam for free. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's got 15 million views on YouTube. You could go listen to it on YouTube for free. You mean to tell me I can't get $10 or $5 or $30 for the new Black Star album with all this free music you get in? What are we even talking about? You know what I'm saying? Like, how are you ignoring all of this to complain about this? Hey, welcome to the Trapital Podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Trapital, Dan Runcy. This podcast is your place to gain insights from the executives in music, media, entertainment, and more who are taking hip-hop culture to the next level. Today's guest is the one and only Talib Kweli. He is one half of Black Star, which is back with its second album, since their debut 24 years ago. 24 years! It's crazy how long it's been, but it was great to talk to him about why he chose to release it now and also why he chose to release it exclusively on Luminary. Luminary is a paid audio platform specifically known for podcasting. So we talked about that decision, why it was important for him and Yassine to release it on a platform where they already had a podcast and what that means for him moving forward. And what it ultimately focuses on is the quest for autonomy and control and independence and being able to reap the rewards that come from it. This is nothing new to Talib Kweli. He's released music on his own website, Kweli Club. He's used Patreon as well to release his music. So we talked about what the decision was like to release on Luminary and more broadly what this means for him as an artist. He's someone that has toured a lot over the years, so we talked about what it's been like since the pandemic, what it's been like finding the right sound and themes given so much of the conscious rap that Blackstar and Talib himself were known for over the years, and we talked about a whole bunch of other trends in the industry. Great conversation, really insightful. I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Here's my chat with Talib Kweli. All right, so today we have the one and only Talib Kweli. One half of Black Star, which is back with its latest album, No Fear of Time. So the album's been out for a little yes, bit, yes. man. How you feeling? How do you feel about the response? I feel grateful and blessed, and uh, I'm happy that the fans have gotten a chance to hear it. I've been listening to it or iterations of it for 
a number of years now, and I'm just happy to have gotten it out. Yeah, I bet. I think, too, I'm glad that the fans are hearing it because one of the big discussion points about the album, which stuck out to me, was how you chose to release it. And I give you so much respect for doing it on your terms and not necessarily following the main path because we all know that artists have their own autonomy and independence. Like, you don't have to just do the standard things. So credit to you on that. Well, yeah, I know all praise due to the most high. And really, really, I give the credit to Yasin Bey because he was the one that really stuck to his guns on that. You know, my music is widely available on many platforms, not all of it. You know, some, some things I have exclusive, but we've had offers, as you can imagine, all through the years to ways to put out the Black Star album in a more traditional way. Yasin uh, stuck to his guns on that. And by default, just me, me being in a group with him, I benefit from that because the situation absolutely was a beneficial situation to me. And to be frank with you, one of my most favorite situations I've been in business-wise in terms of my relationship with my art and how it gets out to people. That's good. That's good to hear. Because I know that you've done a few different things independently. You've released albums on your own website before. You've done Patreon. Mm -hmm. What made you choose Luminary this time? Well, we were already in a a very fruitful relationship with Luminary due to the fact that we had the podcast on Luminary with Dave Chappelle, the Midnight Miracle podcast. And it was attractive to us, the idea that fans who are willing to put their money where their mouth is, or so to speak, fans that are already spending money with us, fans that are following us enough to know where we're at, fans that are interested in our conversation, right? Fans that are interested in us as men, as human beings, and not just like, feed us, feed us, feed us art, feed us content, but fans that are really interested in what we think and how we see the world and how we see art, those fans, I feel like that niche was either already on Luminary, rocking with the Midnight Miracle, or if they had heard about the Midnight Miracle, that would be exciting to them. And so just automatically it weeds out the people who are like, Nah, I'm not interested in you as a human being. I'm not interested in how you feed your family. I'm not interested in your, your thoughts on the state of the industry. I just like the bars and the beats. I just want to hear the music. But that's not the fan I want. You know, and that's not a fan. That's pop music. Pop music is like a blanket, trying to blanket and cover everything and get every single ear. And I don't need every single ear and I don't need all eyes on me. I just want to rock with the people who want to rock with me. And that that's the first thing beyond the fact that you know, the business of Luminary is that we're in is a fair arrangement. It's not, you know, it's not ownership. It's just fair. It's the antithesis of what happens with most of these streaming networks, most of these DSPs. So it's it's just a, it's a good situation. And it's not, you know, the news was, was announced that Dave Chappelle and other people had been invested in Luminary. So it's not just something where it's like, we're asking people to come to something that we personally don't put our money where our mouth is. You know, you know what right. I'm saying? Yeah, because that's what I saw. I saw that Dave Chappelle was an investor. I assume that maybe you and Yassine were as well. And because I know some people, I wondered, okay, well, if I was going to do $5 a month, is that $5 that I could just put directly in Talon's pocket? But you're like, hey, we also want to support the people that have clearly been with us paying for Midnight Miracles, paying for our content. So it's not just about the monetary aspect. It's about being able to share and celebrate with the people that have already been with you. Yeah, exactly. And I, I can't speak for Yassine's investment to what he do with his money. You know, that's that's really his business. I really don't know. But for me, I, I have Quali Club, as you mentioned. 
And I'm very proud of Carly Club, but people are not there. You know, I've never been on Bandcamp. I just started a page on Bandcamp this week for the first time because I've heard about Bandcamp, but in my mind, I'm like, I could do that with Quality Club. I can have my own Bandcamp. And Quality Club is still rocking and it has a unique experience. I sell books there. There's product and information and things you can get from me there that you can't get no place else. But now you can also get my music, some of it, on Bandcamp. And the Black Star album is on Luminary. And I think I'm going to probably do some more things with Luminary. It has all these other podcasts. And it's like, whether you're into those podcasts or not, right? Like, you might not want to hear Trevor Noah or Roxanne Gay or Russell Brand or some of the other podcasts they have there. Or People's Party or Midnight Miracle. But you can't say, well, we're just asking you to pay for this album. You can't say that because that's not accurate. What you're paying for, you're getting a lot more than an album. I agree with that. And I think the distinction here too that I think about, I know you mentioned on your website, of course you could do it there, but that's not necessarily where as many of the fans are, as you mentioned. How does this compare to Patreon, for instance? I know you've used that in the past to release art and release your work specifically. I respect the Patreon audience and the Patreon people and the people who started it. It's a very good idea that is very artist centric. But for me personally, it was Patreon, just like everything else, is based on your level of engagement. It's a social media platform, right? So the more you engage there, the better it's going to be. And they got the, what, the Discord, the plugged in LinkedIn with. And it's just for me, with already engaging on other social media apps to then take that time. And I, I engage where I enjoy, right? I don't do it just for business. Like I'm talking about things I enjoy. And also that because I enjoy the engagement, it's also rewarding to me, it brings followers and listeners, whatever. But just to add time to do it on Patreon, I didn't, I couldn't get into the engaging in the social media part of Patreon. And I feel like for me personally, if you're not going to, I feel like if I wanted to engage to the level of some of the other creators on Patreon, I probably would have done better there. But my interest never, never quite got to there. And so that's what, there's, there's no disrespect to that platform. I just think it's a personal taste or what you enjoy doing and I, I see I see people who do very well on Patreon today yeah. and I feel like for you specifically we're talking about being able to invest in a platform not just with your money but with your time as well and if you're gonna get the most out of a platform you got to put a lot into it and you already had work in Luminary so I feel like that connection was there for you and this also makes me think back to when you had released your gutter rainbows album this was back in 2011 and i feel like at least from what you had written at the time this was a bit of a, a turning point for you because i think what we're talking about is the autonomy and the independence and the impact of that especially from an economic perspective where you're like you know you put up your own money you tripled your investment in a few months and you're like even in the more commercially successful albums you had before that you never saw something like that and i feel like that shaped a lot of your experience and outlook forward yeah and it's even in 2022 it's even more like that i'm still learning and growing and bending and shifting and the space i'm in now is even a lot more independent than i was when gutter rainbows came out now it's just like the industry is completely broken down like when gutter rainbows came out it was like on the way to really really breaking down but now it's completely broken down it's like the wild wild west and it's like really about what you invest in yourself it's really about focusing on the business aspect of it. Like 
where you completely leave the ego out of it. And that's difficult for a lot of artists because a lot of art can be, for better or for worse, ego-driven. And it can be, you know, people say that art is reciprocal. You want people to like your art. You put it out in the world and you search around to see who's feeling it. And that could really have an adverse effect on your ego and what your value system is, right? And, you know, me as an artist, personally, I've spent money. I've invested in things that I knew I wasn't going to see no return on over and over and over again, just for the sake of the art, just for the sake of the culture. And I'm not just talking about my art. I'm talking about other artists on Javodi Media. You know, there's just things that I've invested in. And I'm like, I don't see a path to making a profit here. Unless by some stroke of luck or miracle, something, someone feels as strongly about this art as I do, and it gets a placement somewhere. Someone picks it up for a movie or something like that's possible or use, using commercial stuff like that. But I mean, those are long shots. That's not a guarantee. That's not like a plan for success. Unless you're going into those situations where you're, you're knowing how to, to pitch those things and have those relationships, which I did not and do not, you know? So yeah, my thinking on it now is not that at all because I've done that. I've done the artist thing for so, 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 so long. And I'm not really a businessman at all. I'm a businessman by default. I'm a businessman because I have to be. I love, I love this art so much. I love this culture so much. And in order to sustain myself, in order to live the life I want to live and to feed my family off of this art, I had to learn a certain degree of money management, time management, business management in order to just do what I do. But I don't enjoy it. And this is why this conversation was in, in, doing this podcast was interesting to me because I think it's very important whether I enjoy it or not. I think that's an important distinction because I do think that we see artists now that clearly you could get the sense that music is an afterthought for the bag that they're trying to get. But at the end of the day, I still believe that most of the people in this want to do it primarily because they love the art and they are much more aligned with you where it's like they had to do this because they didn't want to get, you know, taken advantage of by the system. They didn't want to not have things work out in their favor. So by default, you have to have some you know, cursory level of knowing what works and what doesn't. And as you kind of mentioned earlier, that bar has increased a lot since gutter rainbows and it's increased a lot since so many of these things. So the landscape forces you to do that or else you may likely get taken advantage of unless things work out luckily in your favor. I think too, for you, something else you mentioned with this, just thinking about needing to reach so many fans if you are relying on this major system so much of that relies on taking you away from the core people that are really rocking with you because if you're trying to reach the masses and you're trying to do what the major level may want you to do to try to reach the masses then you may have they may want you to either shift your sound they may want you to try to do all these things which further take away from the autonomy and control that you clearly want to be able to have so i get the sense that this more recent stage of your career has likely been more freeing from that perspective. Yeah, I mean, as an artist, I really, really, really want to try everything. I've definitely tried in my music to make music, to take aspects of what I do, who I am as an anti-racist person, as a pro-Black person, as a person who likes a certain type of what they call underground hip-hop, and take those sensibilities and stretch them and expand them and, and find global audiences. And I've worked with artists all over the world from different genres. I've tried many different styles. I've sang, I've done double time. I've done, you know, I rhymed over trap beats. I've done it all. 
I've tried every single thing because as an artist, not only is that my right, I feel like it's my duty to try everything I can. But in that trying, what I've learned is, is that the more I try different things, the more I, I start to lean towards being comfortable and being the best at what I do and finding that thing that what it is that's unique about me and finding that. And I've tried that through my career. People, there's albums and songs and things that people like, maybe be like, I don't like when Talib did this, or I don't like when Talib did that. And some of that, some of it worked and some of it didn't. There's some of it that I love that people hate and some of it that people hate that I love. I don't even know if I just said the same thing twice, but you know what I'm getting at. But in this state, business-wise and creative-wise, I'm closer to the vest and more about what is it that I do best and try to put that on display. Right. And that last piece you talked about in terms of doing things you love that the fans didn't like or the fans not doing things you liked, but then you actually liked it yourself. Did any of that influence how you and Yassine went about this latest album? Well, the good thing about Yassine is that he try, he does try as much as I do. He tries different styles. Absolutely. I've heard him rap and sing on all different types of things. But what really helps shape the Black Star sound is I'm the steward of the beats and the administration. Like I'm going out and finding the beats and Lincoln producers and booking studios. I'm doing all that. But what Yasin is doing is he's trying to get closer to God in his lyrics. You know, all his albums, all his projects start with Bismillah and all his bars and where he's trying to go lyrically is always about a higher level of self and trying to get closer to God, whatever that is for you. And so it makes me step up, frankly. And it doesn't make me just step up, but it makes me, because let's not get it fucked up. Like I don't slouch on my, on my other projects, you know what I'm saying? So it's not just about stepping up, but it's also about the focus is just different. And it's, it's like that when I worked with Styles P, it was a different type of focus. When I worked with Knife Wonder and them, it was a different type of focus. When I worked with High Tech, it's a different type of focus. And it, you know, even on my solo albums, even the producers I work with, whether it was DJ Scratch or Kanye, Will I Am, whoever, like wherever I go with that person is, is pulling something out of me. And what Yasin pulls out of me is wanting to be closer to God. Yeah, I definitely get the sense of that. And even listening to y'all two conversations, hearing it from the album, and even just, you know, his own evolution with religion, I always got the sense that for you two, like spirituality and the importance of that was always going to have a theme through its music. And it's been interesting to see how like that piece from a tonality has evolved over time as well. The debut album you had, there were so many things that were timely to that era. And I think in this album too, we're kind of seeing so much of it because I think that there's a lot of things, whether it's about, you know, black liberation, freedom that I think were relevant then relevant now. However, it looks different in a way that I feel like you all are able to keep a lot of the same themes, but have more of a modern shift to it, which I don't think necessarily applies to a lot of people that are still creating music from the late nineties and putting it out today. Yeah, I hear you. And I think that was very intentional on our part. This album was formed over a lot of conversation and, you know, it's 24 years since the last project. And, um, you know, there was a lot of attention to detail, a lot of attention to detail, but also with the idea that, it's got to sound loose. It's got to sound organic and raw and loose. It can't sound overproduced. Right. 
and it has to be timely as well in a way that it can both stand, you know, the test of time, but also, you know, whether you're talking about millennials and how people are relating to particular things, it has to relate to that piece. And I feel like that resonated with me, at least for being able to hear things as well. But there was something else you said even earlier in this conversation that I was thinking about in terms of doing things and you always willing to try things, whether it's going at EDM, working with different producers. I'm curious, how does that shift with looking at different formats as well to put out music? Because I know that there's this ongoing debate right now about artists and whether or not they should be forced to use TikTok or not, and whether or not people like to use TikTok. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I was watching the Billboard Awards, and that's when I first, I knew in the abstract that everything was moving towards TikTok, right? But watching the Billboard Awards, it hit me when they were introducing every single artist that was popular. Most of them I hadn't heard of or heard their song, but every single thing they were announcing was like, this is how it performed on TikTok. And for how I grew up, that was the radio. And so I was like, now we're in an era where the radio is not on its way to be obsolete, but completely obsolete. And let me be clear, I don't mean radio as a concept. I mean, commercialized pop radio and that system. Because clearly what you're doing is radio. You know, what I'm doing with People's Party and and Midnight Miracle is radio. So that's driving, right? I feel like we're in almost in a golden age of radio. But as far as like with the music business, man, oh man. Yeah, TikTok is, I just posted something today from that Earn Your Leisure posted about Isaac Hayes Jr. uh, for Fanbase talking about the algorithms and Instagram and how when it first started, you could gain 300,000 followers very quickly, a million followers very quickly. But then once they had video and once they had ads, well, now you could be a network. And now the advertisers are going to come to you instead of coming to Instagram. So now they've made it. So that's why they shadow ban people and limit content. I have a million people following me. If I post some, maybe 5,000 people will see it or like it. I don't know how many people see it. I have to look at the insights. But I'm definitely not reaching everybody who I'm supposed to reach. And they'll be like, oh, well, you could if you pay us. You know what I'm saying? And so it's just interesting to see how with TikTok, which is Chinese-based, if I'm not mistaken, I don't think they're doing that. I think they're allowing the content to reach who it's going to reach. Or I, I, I might be mistaken about that. I, don't, I think I that's going to shift with TikTok as well, though, because I think we kind of saw the early yeah. stage where you could put up a song and you know, like a Meg Thee Stallion song could blow up or whoever song could blow up. But I think now they got over a billion people using it every day. I think we're going to see, or using it every month, rather. I think you're going to see the same type of shift happen there too, eventually. Yeah, I mean, I post on TikTok and no one follows me on TikTok. It's like 4,000 people following me on TikTok. But again, it's the same thing with the Patreon thing. I'm not there, right? I'm not engaging with the people. I'm not clicking on videos and scrolling through it and commenting and and I'm not doing anything. I'm just posting things, trying to get some engagement. Because people are there, I'm putting things up. But that's not really where my fans are looking for me at yet at this point. Yeah, and especially with the demo that you're reaching, and they're not looking at you to go do some TikTok dance or something like that, right? Yeah, I started the game doing a TikTok dance. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I hope that that's what he really wanted to do. You know what I'm saying? I hope that he's like, yo, I think that dance is hot, and I'm going to do that dance. Instead of like, damn, I got to get on TikTok and do a dance. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I do think even that piece of it's going to change too, though, because kind of like we saw on YouTube, right? Like people avoided YouTube for a while because they're okay. I'm not going to go out here and go dance like Soulja Boy and try to do some viral video. But 
it eventually matured. And I think we're going to see the same with TikTok where, yeah, you don't have to do some dance that could fit in a vertical video, but you're going to see, you know, folks that, you know, are trying to reach your demo doing whatever the version is that's relatable to them. So it'll take time. And in some ways, I feel like it's already happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Let's take a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsor. Let's talk more about today's sponsor, Beatbread. Beatbread was started because today's artists want to control their own destiny, and traditional record label deals can be way too restrictive for that to happen. It's time for a solution that meets artists exactly where they're at. Beatbread is a music funding platform that helps artists keep control and gain access to capital. They partner with everyone from global charting stars to new artists that are just starting out. At Beatbread, they only share in your streaming revenue and no other income streams. Plus, the deals don't last forever. Once your deal is complete, that's it. You keep 100% of the income. Your recordings, your masters, your publishing, yours to keep. With Beatbread, flexibility is what matters. Their advances range from $1,000 to $2 million. You can choose your own distribution and marketing partners, and you can customize your own contracts. Want to know more about how you can get started? Go to BeatBread.com. That's BeatBread.com. For you, I do think about even, you know, we're talking about spending time on different platforms. Did you dip into Clubhouse, especially when, you know, the hype on Clubhouse was big or? Oh, no. They kicked me off of Twitter for, they didn't like the way I was talking on Twitter. If they can't take what I write in text, they damn sure ain't going to be able to take my voice. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Clubhouse got popping right when I got kicked off of Twitter. So I started getting like, you know, you got to invite people, right? So I started getting like, literally, I would get 15, 20 invites a day. Of people like, you got to join. People would take time out their day to call me. Be like, yo, you should be a Clubhouse. It's perfect for you. And because of that, I was like, there's no way I'm ever going on Clubhouse. <laughs> because, nah, like... Me talking to these niggas? Nah, mm-mm, mm-mm. that would go left quick. The wild thing is, I do think that people can get away with saying wilder shit on audio than they can on written text on Twitter, at least from some of the stuff I've heard. Yeah, that's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right, which is why I don't need to be on <laughs> That's exactly right. Because here's the thing. Here's the problem with me, right? I'm a very intersectional person, you know? I'm not out here slut-shaming. I'm not out here calling women bitches or hoes. I'm not out here using the R word or using the F word. I don't do none of that. I'm not a bigot. I don't use bigoted language, but I'm very good with words. And so with the shit that I write in text, and I'm very blunt and direct. And so the shit I write in text, I feel like it triggers a lot of people in terms of like, because I'm like, "Mm, nah, and I'm just very blunt and direct. If you come at me wrong, I can be insulting without lowering to this vibration of bigotry, right? Or that's not true. Every man has fucking bigotry issues, but I try my best. I feel like I try more than most of the people I converse with, right? And so that me, that shit just comes off as snark, where when people just be upset because they feel like you're making them look stupid and they get very upset, very tight. And that's what it would be for me on Clubhouse. I would say some slick shit and people would get very upset (laughs) very quickly. No, I hear that. I hear you on that. It's been, what, almost two years since you've been off Twitter? Yeah, it's been since 2020. Do you miss it? No, I don't. It was time. I'd been on Twitter for 10 years. I don't miss it at all. I enjoyed my time there, though. 
But you know, I don't miss it because I honestly, for real, in my heart of hearts, I really, truly, truly, truly do not want to be someplace where I'm not wanted. Like, I stand by that. Like, mm-mm. Like, if they don't want me there, I don't have no desire to be there. Yeah, you're not missing much. I'll be honest with you. As someone that spends too much time <laughs> on that place, you're not missing much. Yeah, what I do realize is that being on Twitter, as much as I was on Twitter and then not on Twitter, is that the things that I was talking to people about on Twitter, and these things, let's not get it twisted, right? These are things that are shifting the culture, and these are things that are shaping the world. The things I was talking about in particular, I wasn't talking about frivolous shit. I wasn't talking about rap beefs or whatever. I was talking about, you know, real things. The things I was talking about on Twitter became mainstream news years later. Things that I was ringing the bell on. And a lot of us were ringing the bell on and people were just not paying attention. But what I realized was a lot of the things that were elevated in my mind to a level of super importance that we have to talk about this. People who are not on Twitter, (laughs) not thinking about none of that shit, not talking about none of it. And so... That's why a lot of the stuff that I was going through on Twitter, a lot of stuff that became so ugly and toxic, part of it that I wasn't understanding was when I was like, yo, how is this happening? How is the community letting this happen? Because the community really didn't care, really didn't care. And I'm not saying that to disparage anybody on Twitter. I don't want to seem like now, now, because I'm not on Twitter, like, aha, oh, y'all whack for being on Twitter. I'm not saying that because Twitter is still a very important tool. That's why all the conversation around Elon Musk and all that stuff is so prevalent and so important. There are people who still use Twitter in amazing ways, absolutely. But I agree with you. Twitter is accessible and it was accessible when I was there. It's just a lot clearer not being there and a lot, a lot more understanding for why people didn't give a shit about it. You know, now looking at the engagement, I'm glad I was there. I learned a lot. I gained a lot. It was a gift and a curse, but mostly a gift for me. But yeah, it was time for me to go, and they decided that before I did, but they were correct. (laughs) And I think with that, too, it's a bit of that double standard that I think public figures like yourself are kind of put towards, right? People can, you know, reply at you and talk all sorts of shit to you and take what you say out of context. But if you go back at them, then they're going to say, okay, he's putting his fan base back at me. He's doing this. and Yeah, that's such an important part of this conversation, right? And I want to be clear here because, like I said, I'm an intersectional person. So, you know, I don't want to be the guy that hears protect Black women and be like, well, what about men? You know what I'm saying? Because as a man, I'm a member of a privileged oppressor group. I'll go as far to say. But there's a phrase, Black men are often the white men of the Black community, right? Now, that phrase is funny, is hyperbolic, right? But it's based in some truth. And I understand why people would say that. When women be like, all men are dogs. Yeah, I get it. I don't personally feel like I'm a dog. I've done some dog shit before, but I don't personally look at myself like that. I don't feel offended by that. But just because Black men can and often are the white men of the Black community, if we're going to be hyperbolic, right, doesn't mean that we're not still part of a marginalized group of people. It doesn't mean that we're not still under attack. It doesn't mean that we're not still faced with many threats and that we don't still need protection because we absolutely do. And the conversation in our community has to be about the Black community. It has to be about women and children and men and gay people and disabled people and rich people and poor people. It has to be about all of us if we're talking about the conversation around systemic oppression. And so the idea that because I've earned 
an extra layer of privilege because I'm already born with some privileges. I'm already born in America, born as a man, but because I've mastered my craft and worked hard to master my craft and it's earned me a, a degree of fame and a degree of celebrity and a degree of money that a lot of people can't earn or, or not in a position to earn resources and all that. Because of that, I'm now supposed to allow people to disrespect not just me, but my family and particularly the women in my family. And I'm not allowed to be a human being and want to respond and, and have a response. The things that people say about celebrity is that they are disconnected and they don't engage. I don't view myself as celebrity. I view myself as an artist. Well, as an artist, I'm gonna talk to the people and for better or for worse, you know? What I realize now is that me talking to the people has put a target on my back because a lot of these people don't even deal with these people. They just block people, look and call them trolls. They don't even talk to anybody. And I'm not built that way. And I understand the logic behind it, but I also, there's also a method to my madness as well. And so the idea, I push back hard against the idea that, that you have a pass to undervalue my humanity or to not treat me like a human being because you haven't earned what I've earned in terms of cultural currency, you know, because you choose to be anonymous or because you are not famous or because you are not, I don't know, whatever, but like, I can't abide by that. I can't, I, I find myself inclined to speak out against that idea that we lack humanity or we are less human or we deserve to be treated less than because we're famous or because we have a million followers or whatever the metric is, I don't know. And I think this point brings the conversation full circle, right? Because so many people, when you and Yassine decided to release the album on your terms, they're like, oh, well, you're not going to put it on streaming. You're missing out that you shouldn't be doing this. And y'all are like, hey, this is our music. You can't tell us what to do. Like, this is our craft. And I think it just goes back to the entitlement of people feeling like they have the ability to dictate what you do when you are the one that is in control of what you do. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm glad you brought that up because for me, those conversations are difficult, right? Because I'm an advocate for artists. I'm a fan. So when we talk about fans, right, we're not talking about, I'm not separate from that group. When you see me post on Instagram videos of me with Bun B and I'm jumping up and down just like any fan would, I'm not playing it cool. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I'm a fan as well. And me as a fan, I'm a fan of these artists as human beings. That's why I wrote that article um, in defense of Miss Hill. Because it's like, if I'm a fan of her music, then, yo, sis, take your time. If you don't feel like showing up at the show tonight, hey, I guess we got to eat that one tonight. But you still Miss Hill. You're a human being. You're not some product that rolls out on stage. You press a button, it's just go. If you're having a human issue, you're a human being that's having a human issue. Let us know when you got some new shit, and I'll be happy to support. I'm likely, if you give me an option, I'll overpay for it. How about that? Because... I can't quantify what you've given me. And that's honestly how I feel. So it's hard for me to relate to these fans who be like, I want, first of all, that's even the wrong language to be using with me. Talking about what you want. You know what I'm saying? If you want the Black Star, I'm gonna make the Black Star out. And if you can't, then meet us halfway, bro, and come to where I'm at. Because guess what? The first Black Star album, Universal says they own and they don't own it. We've never signed a contract for that album. So they've been profiting off of that. So if you bought that or listened to it or streaming, you've been paying some rich white company that has nothing to do with Blackstar. Every song on that album is available on YouTube. Most of my music is available for free on YouTube. On qualityclub.com, you can get all my mixtapes for free. You can get the album Fuck the Money for free. My biggest song, Get By, 
you could, if that shit came on in the store, you could Shazam it and listen to it on Shazam for free. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's got 15 million views on YouTube. You could go listen to it on YouTube for free. You mean to tell me I can't get $10 or $5 or $30 with a new Black Star album with all this free music you get in? What are we even talking about? You know what I'm saying? Like, how are you ignoring all of this to complain about this? Right. It's like you've had so much up to this point. It's not like you haven't had anything, you know, like if you want to be able to put this one out on your terms, then yeah, here it is. You know, you don't owe anyone anything. Yeah. I find it hard to relate to the people who don't understand that, which is why, if you notice, when I've been on social media and people ask about it, my response has been, well, this album is not for you. And maybe I should stop doing that because that's such a triggering thing to say to people. And I've been saying it a lot because I mean it. But then it starts these long arguments with people, fuck you, and you're mean to the fans. It's like, no, nah, my fans are listening to the album. Now, whether or not they like it or not, that's subjective. My fans were listening to Midnight Miracle. And if they weren't, if you're a fan who's watching this podcast right now, and you didn't know about Midnight Miracle, go listen to it, because you're a fan. You want to hear what we got? You want If you're a fan of us, be a fan of us. I don't believe in separate the artist from the music. I don't do that. I feel like that's a cop-out. Let me not say that because let me just speak for myself. You can't do that with me because I am what my music is. All them lies they be telling about me, it doesn't go with my music. It doesn't go with my actions. It doesn't go with the truth. I am what I say in these bars. I stand on that. I'm very proud of that. Right. And I think the other piece of this too that I think has now just become the norm in music is that so many artists are predispositioned to be like, okay, let me just put my music out on streaming treat it like it's marketing, get it out there, and then let me make my money when I go on tour. But the way that you all have it set up, I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way. You can get the money from the art, and you could also get the money, you know, if you and Yassine choose to do a tour together. I mean, I was touring, I was touring before the pandemic, I was doing 200 shows a year. So that's more than anybody, you know, like I was, I, that model right there, think about it, I got 16 albums out doing 200 shows a year. So that's what, you describing my life. That's exactly what I was doing. And I don't do that anymore. And I don't plan on doing it again. When I look at pictures or videos for myself from that time, I don't even recognize that person. I'm like, how was I doing that? That's not sustainable. I was on some superhuman shit. I don't know what, I don't know how I was doing this. I don't know how I was dropping music and touring at that pace and still like doing activist work and supporting my family and just being me and being on Twitter. You know what I'm saying? Like all of it, I was doing all of it. And I don't know how I was doing all that. How many shows do you think you'll go back to? If 200 was a lot, what do you think is the ideal range? As you're saying, as I'm saying this to you, I'm thinking about it. I'm like, damn, I've got a lot of shows booked coming up, but I can't let it get back to 200 a year. Yeah. I mean, because at that rate, yeah, I mean, you're talking, I mean, like more than half of the days of the year, you are out there putting it all out there. I mean, yeah. 20 years straight. I did that for 20 years. And it's wild. It's wild. I mean, I think at least the position that you're potentially in now you can earn more money from the actual music you're putting out. You clearly have, you know, a bit buy-in with a platform that has other people that are invested in it as well. And then with any other business interest that you may have, like, this is something to build up on, right? It's clearly like recurring revenue that you have. And if you and Luminary continue to grow, then you can also tour and do any of that other stuff on your own terms. Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. Like that's the way to go with it. Well, Tyler, this has been a great conversation. I feel like we covered a bunch just in terms of, the importance of autonomy, importance of independence, and where you see things going. 
But for the people that are listening and they do want to follow, I'm sure they already know if they're listening, but where should they go to check for the latest <laughs> of what you got going on? Man, just follow me on, on Instagram. If they don't kick me off Instagram, because they be threatening to kick me off Instagram too. They don't like when I talk about racism on Instagram. So for as long as I'll be on Instagram, follow me there. I just joined Fanbase today. So I'm looking forward to exploring Fanbase. But I mean, you got to come see me in the flesh or don't actually, you know, like just, I don't know. <laughs> Like I've been out in the flesh a, a lot, man. I don't know. I don't know. Just, just holla at me when you see me. I'll try to make my presence known for the near foreseeable future. I'm definitely going to be at Luminary. So I definitely encourage people to subscribe to Luminary. Sounds good. And I appreciate the fan base shout out too. Shout out to Isaac Hayes III. I had him on the podcast a couple months ago. I love what he's building. Yeah, me too. I'm, I've been knowing about it for a minute, but now as I'm starting to like really assess what's valuable to me, I'm like, starting to look at things a little different. And I'm like, yeah, fan base is, can't, we can't keep talking about it, right? At some point we got to right, support exactly. it. We know that this is the culture that pushes it forward. It's our culture. I mean, have the people that are about it to be the ones that actually own it and we can see what happens. Yeah, word up. Yeah. All right, man, appreciate you. All right, peace. All right, man, thanks. If you enjoyed this podcast, go ahead and share it with a friend. Copy the link, text it to a friend, post it in your group chat, post it in your Slack groups, Wherever you and your people talk, spread the word. That's how Traffalo continues to grow and continues to reach the right people. And while you're at it, if you use Apple Podcasts, go ahead, rate the podcast, give it a high rating, and leave a review. Tell people why you like the podcast. That helps more people discover the show. Thank you in advance. Talk to you next week.